Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the Wonky Show. And in a special episode this week, we've got a swag bag full of highlights from day one of our Secret Life of Students event. It's all coming up. We, we don't think that a, a successful outcome looks like lots of students knowing how to sue their university. That, that misses the point. The, the, the point here is the substantive outcomes that we want to see for students. So, for example, students being well informed about their choices and so making the right decision about what and where to study. It's uh, students having a, a strong... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson and in a special edition this week we've got a whole bunch of highlights from day one of our Secret Life of Students event. Held in the cloud with delegates from universities, students unions and sector organisations from across the UK. Our rescheduled Secret Life of Students conference has all been about doing student experience differently. We've brought together the research and intel, reviewed everything we learned about students over the past year, and we've asked what COVID-19 might mean for students, their experience and their outcomes. Uh, We're hugely grateful to our supporters Pearson, Solution Path and Aula for helping us make the event happen. First up this morning, Advance HE Chief Executive Alison Johns opened up proceedings with a whole bunch of things that we learned about students this year. What are students telling us about value for money? Well, we're seeing improvements in value for money for students up until last year. And this year, sadly, it's taken a dip. Um, It's interesting that the academic experience survey, student academic experience survey, took place two weeks before COVID started and two weeks, well, in terms of the lockdown, I mean, not started, um, the lockdown started and two weeks post the lockdown. Um, There was slight, slight changes, but um, you can see generally there is a dip in uh, perceptions of value for money. And if we look at the next slide, I think we can see perhaps where the students are coming from. So here are some of the qualitative quotes. I won't read them out to you. I'll just give you a chance to have a look at those yourselves. And I think that whilst many still equate value with face-to-face teaching experience, we will see later the importance of digital um, in terms of enhancing the student experience. So the, the, the two key drivers, as far as we could see, in terms of perceived value for money, were very much about the industrial action. And gosh, that seems a lifetime away, which took place in February and maybe January uh, of this year. Um, and then the real initial impact of COVID. Um, and this was, I think we were all completely blindsided. And, you know, universities were finding their feet, dealing with students, dealing with safety. These are some of the things that people were saying. I think the picture has improved greatly since that, since the first two weeks of lockdown. Do students think they've got good information about where their money's spent? Well, it's getting slightly better, only slightly better, and there's still a way to go, but it is going in the right direction. So I think there is a real strong message there for us as a sector, for universities to think about, particularly in the the sort of the new normal, um, how to demonstrate how fees are spent for students to help them understand. So I think your section on turning value for money upside down on its head. Look, we could probably all look at that and see, well, how could that help us think about how we how we demonstrate how we're investing? Now, after Alison had kicked things off, we were thrilled to welcome to Secret Life the Chief Exec of the Office for Students, Nicola Dandridge, who answered questions from Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, on everything from the pandemic to the future of the National Student Survey. Let's have a listen. We have set up a new regulatory system, which is no mean feat in itself. We've got the registration system up and running, a compliance system up and running. We've established our access targets and uh, have plans in place to deliver all of that. So that so the infrastructure is now largely in place. 
Um, it's impossible to answer that question without seeing it through the lens of coronavirus, which has so impacted on how we've approached issues in terms of what we're achieving for the students. And we were very clear at the beginning of this pandemic that we were going to focus on some really um, specific issues that really mattered. So we published guidance setting out our expectations on, on quality, what, what our expectations were there. Um, and that was followed by um, guidance on um, consumer protection, focusing particularly on the importance of clarity to students. And that's been a theme that we've, we've emphasised again and again over the last few months. We're doing a lot of work behind the scenes on financial sustainability, which may not be visible to students, but it's incredibly important that we do what we can to um, keep um, contribute to keeping uh, providers going. We contributed to stabilising the admission system, which looked very vulnerable um, at one point. And then, you know, whole sorts of plans for the future as term begins. So I, I suspect we'll come back to most of these things, but um, it, it's been a massive agenda. And I think what we're trying to do now is keep on track and develop the core work that we were planning anyway. It's been delayed by coronavirus inevitably, but real priorities um, over the next few months in terms of uh, consultations on quality and consumer protection. Um, but at the same time, really thinking through how we can add value in the context of coronavirus over what's going to be an incredibly challenging few months. Thanks, Nicola. So well, let's start with, with coronavirus then. I mean, one of, the, one of the key issues that it's thrown up is that digital divide. Um, I know Michael Barber, Chair of FS, has got a longer term review um, in, into that question, but it's, it's been, it's been um, uh, particularly, uh, particularly important, I think, to focus on, um, given, that, given that so much of, uh, of our higher education collective enterprise has moved um, digitally in the, in the last few months. So I'm keen to know what you and, and OFS are planning uh, or thinking about doing about that in the next, next, next period of time. Well, there always was digital provision, so it's not as if it's totally new, but I agree it's of a very different order now. And um, certainly in terms of how we're approaching our core um, re regulatory functions, that will continue. As I said before, our expectations in terms of um, quality outcomes and clarity of communications with students will continue. So, for example, if a course does go online, then we would have expected the students to have known that that would happen and it would have been clearly communicated. So I think those core expectations will continue to hold good and um, we will continue to look very closely at where what a student receives in terms of the quality of their, of their teaching, if it is, for example, digital, doesn't match up with their expectations because that's a, a core of what, what we made clear would relate to our expectations. Beyond that, um, we are looking very closely through the lens of um, vulnerable students, students from disadvantaged backgrounds, what the impact of this will be on them. And that may affect access and participation targets. It may affect who can participate digitally and who couldn't. So the whole access and participation lens that my colleague Chris Millwood leads will be very focused on how these um, set of circumstances impact on different uh, demographic groups of students. Um, we're going to be encouraging uh, notification from students and student unions where um, the quality at systemic structural level um, is weak and if needs be we will intervene we are very concerned about mental health it always a challenge it was a challenge a serious issue beforehand and we prioritized that um, before the pandemic now I think it's even more acute and we will be doing what we can to support um, interventions that are already taking place and um, making clear that we see that as a priority and then of course there's my chair Michael Barber's um, review of digital teaching and learning which is four square within this agenda and he is looking now at um, what uh, works, what examples of good practice, innovative practice are that we can um, disseminate and promote, working very closely with the sector and others, but also where it is falling short. And there was that initial polling um, that we, we published, um, which sort of confirms probably what many uh, people listening in know, which is, as you said, a, a real digital divide. Some people will really struggle. It's not necessarily issues of access to software um it, it's often just having a, a a decent place to work digitally and remotely so michael will be picking up all of that more reporting in, in in the new year um and taking forward that work so um yeah it's a it's a priority of course it is and um we'll be working very closely with the sector with students and um other colleagues to take this forward in our work 
And I, I guess on, on when things don't go so well in, in all of that, you, you said recently that you're, you're going to look at tackle pockets of, um, uh, of poor provision. Can, can you tell us kind of essentially what, what that means? Are you, are you talking about kind of subjects of programs or providers and, uh, uh, and kind of, I guess, what you're looking for and how you're looking for it um, and, you know, and, and, and where basically? Yeah, and um, that, Mark, actually um, relates to a consultation that we are um, proposing to put out very shortly on looking again at our approach to um, condition B3, which is student outcomes. And what we will be proposing is that as well as uh, approaching it from a provider in aggregate, if you like, we also um, are interested in looking at how we can um, focus in and drill down on structural elements of a, of a university or college's provision which may be weak so that could be um courses it, it could be impact on particular demographic groups of students for example if the if, if the um university or college is not is not delivering good outcomes for black students or disabled students whatever it may be it could be mode of study so it could be that there's weaknesses in terms of postgraduate provision for example um or part-time provision. So it's explicitly opening up for debate the possibility of us intervening in a, in a more sophisticated way than we are able to do currently. So that's um, that's a proposition as consultation, and we'll be getting people's views. We're very keen to get students' views on this as well, and student unions. So um, as soon as that's launched, we will um, want to be in touch and hear from people. But that was the context in which um, I said that, and I think we feel that's quite an important element of our um regulatory approach we think it um, should be but clearly we need people's views on it when 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 do you expect that consultation to launch next few weeks next few weeks and is this for implementation during this academic year or uh for for the for future years i think it's unlikely for this no, it can't be actually we've got to consult properly on this so it can't be for 2021 okay okay um so con- consumer rights have obviously been in the um the headlines over the last few months, uh, particularly over the strikes and then obviously um, coronavirus. Uh, and I, I think I don't think this is a particularly controversial statement to say that, that students probably don't really understand their rights. And it's, it's, it's the whole system is pretty complicated, um, even for us policy wonks, let alone, let alone students coming into it. Um, and, and lots of kind of conflicting information and um, actually misinformation you see all, all, all over the place, um, even from, from often trusted sources um, just this week, like Money Saving Expert, for example, completely uh, misunderstanding, again, the, 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 student, the student system. Um, I'm really interested to know what OFS is going to do about this. And we spoke we spoke a long time ago about um, OFS's interaction with students directly, um, and I think this is kind of the this is the crux of it. And I'm really interested to know how you see that in that point of interaction, um, and how, and how you might help students understand um, what their rights are in all of this. Uh, yeah, this is a huge and fascinating area, and you're right. Um, it is an area where I think there is uh, confusion. Um, confusion not just sort of conceptually about how consumer protection uh, legislation works in the context of higher education but I think also in a much more substantive and I think more serious way confusion in terms of students not being clear what their rights are and how they can exercise them. We um, have uh, we were getting to grips with this when coronavirus struck we had a, a really decent discussion a good discussion with our board back in I think it was November of 2019 and we were just taking it forward. And now, of course, it's got slightly delayed. But um, we, are, we are very clear we need to pick this up and take it very seriously. How I think we're framing it is um, we, we don't think that a, a successful outcome looks like lots of students knowing how to sue their university. That, that misses the point. The, the, the point here is the substantive outcomes that we want to see for students. So, for example, students being well informed about their choices and so making the right decision about what and where to study. It's uh, students having a, a strong um, quality academic experience when they get to university or college and then having um, a, a, a high quality, broader experience in terms of um, the support they need, having um, clarity about uh, funding and costs and um, clarity about expectations uh, being met. So so these are the outcomes that we're looking for. Um, That is underpinned by consumer protection. And what we are proposing is um, thinking through how we can develop our regulatory model. So it 
So it draws on the consumer protection to enforce those outcomes. That, that's a bit of a theoretical way into it, but I think it's the only way of making sense of this. So what does that look like in practice? Well, at the moment, um, we've got our C conditions, which um, require providers to have due regard to um, guidance, which effectively is the CMA guidance. And what we were proposing back in November, and we want to start taking this forward, is actually we look again at whether that's the best way to construct clarity around consumer protection rights to inform and support those substantive outcomes. And we think we could do much more on this. Uh, We really want to engage with the issue of student contracts and how that can inform this. But as I said right at the beginning, Mark, this is not about um, encouraging uh, individual litigation, which goes to your point about what's our relationship with students. We don't see our role as encouraging individual litigation, even though, of course, students have rights and they need to know what, really importantly, they need to know what their rights are. But what we want to do is embody the, the consumer protection regulation in our approach so that effectively we do the work for the students, if you like, and try and achieve those outcomes, drawing on consumer protection regulation as a way of doing that. That might sense, it's quite difficult to explain, but I think, do you see what I'm getting at here? Alongside all of that, of course, it's really important students know they have individual rights to to complain to the OIA. That's just absolutely critical and we will be promoting and encouraging it as we do now and also through individual legal rights. But we don't see that as being the solution, really. They exist, they're important, but they underpin, from our perspective, um, a regulatory approach, which we think does need to be clearer. And as soon as we can get to it, we will. Um, I think the difficulty at the moment with this and indeed other things is that we need to consult, quite rightly, we need to consult and get people's views. And it's just very difficult to reasonably expect people to contribute the time and thought to this when they're dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. So there's a timing issue here. Um, and we, you know, we just have to acknowledge that that is slowing us down, which is frustrating because it's really important. But that's how it is. Great stuff. Now, later this morning, we were thrilled to welcome to Secret Life Libby Farrier-Williams. Libby's a lecturer at St Mary's University in Twickenham, a former Students' Union sabbatical officer and the author of a rather unique PhD thesis on students and the value they get from the student experience. Let's hear a bit. Some background to kind of give you an idea of where this came from and why I wanted to understand value. Myself as a student, um, as an undergrad student, I felt like I was very coasting along. You know, I was a 2-2 student. I was part of different clubs, but I didn't feel like anything was tailored for me. And often, actually, the things that I valued as a student was some of the social side, my friendships. And again, I felt like that wasn't what the university wanted me to value. And when I went on to be vice president of education, I then started sitting in these academic meetings and I realised that a lot of the policies that we come up with, decision-making, was always for first-class students or for failing students. And while that's great, actually there's a huge bunch of students in the middle that could do better, could get better grades. And we're ignoring sometimes what they value and we're not giving them the chances to succeed. And I think that's very, even more prominent today. You know, we have a record number of students. They all come in, we're focusing on widening participation strategies, more quality and diversity strategies which is great. And it also means that the student experience is really complex now. They are going through different challenges, different responsibilities, um, and they've probably got different aims and outcomes. You know, it's not all about, I'm going to get a first and go off to this career. You know, a lot of them don't actually know where they're going. And then it's around these buzzwords, these words of engagement, value and satisfaction. You know, it was just mentioned that we keep hearing them. And we've come up with an ideal. We've said this is what value is. This is what engagement is. But actually the student voice of what that is, is has been lost or it's been always reliant on a survey that, let's be honest, a lot of the times only certain students fill out those surveys. Um, so we lose a lot of that, but we're using it in all our ranking systems and things like QAA and TEF. We're relying on those terms. And then it also is along with that. I, I have a marketing background, so I come with that idea. And the issue that I don't like the term student as consumers and I avoid that. But I think the good thing about current marketing practice is that it's very consumer orientated. So it puts the students in the heart of decision making. It works as a partnership and it works for that relational um, that relational factor. So what I did, as I said, um, I did a very unique methodology that I haven't actually seen done at, my, at the intensity level that I did it. Um, I did an ethnography. So what that means is that I went in and pretended to be a student 
So I did that for 15, 16 months and I acted as one of them. I did covert research. They didn't know who I was. I joined sports clubs, societies. I had a part-time job. Um, I went on nights out drinking. I went to lectures and seminars. I sat in the library working. I, anything I could think of, I did. Um, and it was, it was intense. I couldn't do it again because it would exhaust me. I also couldn't get away with looking 20 again. But it was really fun. And they are 24-7 communicating with one another. I had texts at three in the morning, um, you know, can I come round and, oh, this has upset me, this has annoyed me, can I, shall we catch up? And it's 24-7. I was out writing notes um, on my phone when I could get a split second away from people. I was writing on napkins if I didn't have anything to write on and quickly heard something that was really good. Um, so it was, it was really intense. Um, there were times that I did tell students who I was. That was ethical reasons. So I told... Um, for example, the Pride Society, uh, the Christian Union Society that I went to, I just felt that I couldn't pretend to be part of that group or have share that experience. Um, and I also, a couple of girls actually told me some really in-depth mental health crises that were going on. They got themselves in very dangerous situations where they relied on their friends for support. They didn't rely on family and they didn't tell the university or the university couldn't help them. Um, because of restrictions, rules, whatever those are. And it was those circumstances where I said, actually, you know, you're trusting me and telling me this. I need to, I need to be honest and try and help you as well. Um, so that's the background of what I did and try to get through how intense that was. Extraordinary. And we had some great questions in for Libby too. So uh, let's catch up with a couple. Obviously, so you did this after being a student officer, right? Yes. Um, so last week I'm on the phone, like on zoom like this with a bunch of sabs three times on the Monday, talking to people about whether or not realistically students are going to, um, declare their symptoms if they have COVID symptoms or whether they'll just sort of leave it for 48 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. One of the things that one of the sabs said to me was no one ever asks them questions like that inside their university. So they feel like they're asked a professional question and they have to give a professional answer. And often they, they don't share what they think students really think. And they're the student reps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just interested in your perception on, you know, going from being an actual kind of student yeah. to, a, to, a, to that thing where you have to sort of, you know, be smart and, and respond in the appropriate way in a meeting. And then suddenly you're sort of triangulating both of those things and trying <laughs> to work out what the difference is. What was, you know, how, what are the kind of differences between those? And, and how might we get, I guess, more honest answers out of the student reps and course reps and subs that we've got? I, when I was a student rep, I didn't realise kind of how lucky I was until I went to sort of those conferences with other reps, um, other sabbatical officers. Because actually at my institution, we had a very good relationship with the staff where we could be very honest and I think yeah, I, I was also lucky. It was it's Nottingham Trent isn't really a Russell group. It is a bit more aware of that. And it was doing quite a lot around student engagement at the time. So for me, I was quite open to say I don't think students care about that as much as you think they do. Or and I was I was always quite open with that. Um, I just think it's how you phrase it. But I think universities and they are getting a lot better at this. Have to start realizing that you know it, we have to be student orientated, and it might not be what you want to hear. And you might feel I'm a research university and that's what we're here to do and we teach this way. Um, but actually, we have to be listening to those demands and those wants. If we're going to offer what we want, even if it's not something we think or we, we think they want and need, um, it's hard. And I think that's sort of a cultural shift that has to happen between the institution and the student union. Um, um, lots of the uh, kind of stuff that comes out around teaching tends to sort of contrast this idea of the kind of teaching performance, you know, the performance of the contact hour. Yeah. Um, and some of that debate has gone on over the past few months, actually, about whether or not the contact hour should be synchronous or asynchronous and so on, uh, versus the value of learning. And, you know, there's research that says students learn more when they go and find stuff themselves and it's not really about synchronous stuff. But there's also research that says, actually, students who you know, don't experience the kind of performance of learning, feel like they're not getting bang for buck. So how does, how on earth do we not, not, I mean, normally, let alone during COVID, how do we make sense of this kind of dichotomy between this, this notion of the kind of polished PDF or, or, or physical performance of teaching? And then the reality, which is students seem to learn more when they go and find it themselves. 
I I do a combination. I'm doing now. I'm going to be doing online learning this year. Um, so something that we I am a big fan of is bite-sized lectures. So 15 minute. Here's the content. Here's an activity to go with the content where you can. Um, obviously, it's not always possible when you have 400 in a lecture theatre. But you know, keeping it a lot more bite-sized with breaks to go and do other little bits of work. Um, I also think when talking to students, they already assume that you're the expert in this field. They don't need you to stand there and talk about you know, this is my perfect looking slide with every key thing. And sometimes they actually want you to come down a bit to their level when you're communicating, you know, get along with them a lot better. Yeah. It appears more approachable as well for their communication with you. They're more likely to ask you questions um, and combining that. And I am, I'm a big fan in group, group activities. So I will, in my seminars, I will nearly always say, I want you to work together on this problem to solve it. And then I want you to present it back. And then I will give you additional information based on what you've not said or student led seminars where they have a week to come up with a topic and talk about it at the beginning. And then I'll say, okay, I'll finish off the lecture based on what you might have missed or add additional things. And I think that way they have some responsibility and they need responsibility in their learning um, to know that. And I say in the week one, you are responsible. I make that very clear that I will give them all the help and advice, but if they want to get better grades, they want to improve on anything, they have to do that themselves. Yeah. I think it just reiterates that for them. Um, and then, yeah, just making that communication a lot clearer. And you do talk specifically about the 2 1 being the sort of minimum grade that, that they all want these days. That's, I mean, that, again, in, in kind of sector land, we, we think about that in terms of good honours and the way in which that's calculated for league tables and grade inflation. But it means something, doesn't it, as a kind of oh, default now for students? And I think that's driven. It's driven by employers saying, we want you to apply with the 2 1. But right. it's also driven because of the language we use. Um, you know, we say in we say in the first lectures or seminars, we say if you want a two one, you know, we say that because it's almost like we're saying that's what you want. Like I know that's and so it's, that's it's, the thing I'm supposed to get. Sort of thing, yeah, yeah, and it's always saying that, and it's just it's sometimes unfair because students will not not all students will get a two one. I didn't get a two one, so it's just not something normal. And so that all I've tried to say is now I did an induction actually earlier today, and I said, oh, this is forty. So as long as you get forty, you know, you've passed, you've done well. Obviously, room for improvement. I think we need to change our language a little bit and stop saying 2-1 is the only grade worth it. Brilliant. Now, after a spot of lunch and a fries chocolate cream bar, we went on to look at fairness. Uh, Gen Z places a lot of value and importance on fairness and fair treatment, but do they get that as students? Our panel had a view. The fact is that in the UK, we know that in universities here, anywhere from one in two to one in five students and men have been sexually assaulted or raped. It's, a, it's an epidemic problem. It is massive. It is something that we're working hard in our law firm to do something to help those students who have been harmed. Um, um, higher educational institutions have a tough job, um, one they don't really want, we found here or in the States where we do a lot of work also in this area. The problem is that when a student has been sexually assaulted or raped or bringing a case of harassment, she or he has no right to access evidence that's related to her or his case. And they can't demand that anybody be interviewed by the university when they're investigating the complaint. They have no right to attend a hearing that the university may be conducting on behalf of that person to try and get to the bottom of what happened in the assault. There's no right to representation, legal or otherwise, even just to have a friend there. They have no right to know the outcome of what the university has decided. They have no right to discuss the outcome or the process. They have no right to oppose her complaint being just dismissed, being dismissed or resolved by a settlement between the institution and the staff member who has done the harm, and there's no right to an appeal. So these disadvantages are clearly inconsistent with the student complaint process guidelines as set forth by the Office of Independent Adjudicator for Higher Education. They expose higher educational institutions to lawsuits for breaches of the Equality Act 2010 and other legal obligations. So the four types of fairness, uh, the first is procedural fairness, which is about process. Students have the right to question a decision and respond to that decision. They also have a right to a timely decision. Was the process fair? Uh, Was all the information given to the parties and were their voices heard? 
Then you get substantive fairness, which is about justice. Uh, decision letters must be comprehensive and outline reasons. Uh, there should be greater amount of detail when it's a very serious case or when the sanctions are more severe. Uh, was the overall decision fair? Um, was all the relevant information taken into account? Uh, then you have relational fairness, which is about how you've been treated. Were you treated respectfully in an open, um, an open and courteous dialogue encourages people to speak with confidence? Uh, was I treated fairly? Um, was I respected? Uh, and then finally, you have equitable fairness, and this is about recognizing difference. Uh, it's about considering the humanitarian and extenuating circumstances when making a decision uh, to ensure that person's location and status are acknowledged and understood. Uh, was I on a level playing field? And how can power differentials be reduced? So Natalie Sharp at uh, Alberta has uh, developed this matrix, uh, which I've uh, fiddled around with a little bit and adapted. Um, and it shows the, the types of fairness and the sort of questions that you can ask to make sure that if you're the decision maker, you're being fair. And if you're supporting a student, you can check whether they have been treated fairly. So uh, under fairness, um, procedural fairness, you get uh, due process. Does the student have enough information and so on? Uh, substantive fairness, uh, do I have the authority to make this decision? Uh, relational fairness, uh, am I respecting confidentiality, for example? Am I presenting information in a way the student can understand? Uh, and does the student feel heard? And then equitable fairness, um, have I thought about the student's class and ethnicity and gender? Is the process inclusive? Um, and have any issues of marginalisation or power been considered? The most obvious way to make accommodation fairer is to make it cheaper. And that's a very, that's a very sort of glib statement to make. There are some genuine challenges for private operators uh, in doing that, of course, What's not really appreciated behind the scenes is the, the queue of people waiting to get their cut, the local authority, the highways agency, that everybody can, can make a little claim when you're making a new development. So rents alone uh, and, and rent controls alone could be, could be difficult. However, and this is what brings me on to my um, four suggestions, and this is my first suggestion. Over the last uh, several years, four, five, six years, governments has have piled money into right to buy, help to buy, uh, things to stimulate the housing market. Huge amount of money. If just a small amount of that was made available for universities who have experience in building accommodation, experience in running accommodation, and many of them have the land in order to do it, but just don't have the capital. If governments could provide some of that money to universities, to build student accommodation. And this is very much going back to the 70s. If you listen to the, the, the Hidden History of Universities on the Wonky podcast, you hear all about government-designed uh, halls of residence. It's not necessarily a bad thing. So government-funded halls of residence pegged to a percentage maximum of the maintenance law. There has to be an allocation of affordable accommodation. Almost all the accommodation, certainly in the home counties, will cost more than the maintenance loan that you can get in a year. That means that the shortfall has to come from part-time working, parents, overdrafts, private loans. That's simply not fair. Now, next up, student safety is a huge contemporary policy issue right now. And in our afternoon session on how far student safety should go, we got both some fascinating research and a live case study on balancing safety and freedom in a time of COVID-19. Let's catch up with some of the content. Um, um, the social factors. This this was the thing that came out, uh, I think, most strongly uh, with the students that we spoke to. We heard a lot about this. Um, so we also were looking at the theme of community. And before we even got onto safety, uh, pretty much every student had used the word safe in relation to their uh, community of friends. So uh, a typical quote would be, Oh, just generally you feel safe because you're surrounded by so many good people and we had a lot of variants on that. Um, we heard about students actively managing their environment to fit their own sense of safety. So one student chose his accommodation because he said well it looked like the sort of place that studious people would go um, and, and he was right and uh, that, that gave him a safe environment. Uh, another student ejected someone from her friendship group because of something they did. Um, and I'll give you her words. She said, there's levels to the madness. On a scale of 10, the scale of the madness I would allow people to get to is seven. 
if you're going to get to 10, you can't be friends with me. Uh, she was quite emphatic about this. Uh, she said a lot about it. She wouldn't tell us what the person had done. Um, but she was really clear about her boundaries. And we heard similar examples, uh, probably not quite as dramatic from other students. But we also heard students who had boundaries that they weren't able to articulate um, and had been living in situations where their boundaries were being overstepped, which could have really quite a significant uh, impact on their mental health. So I think we can expect to see that played out this year in that COVID context, um, a level of peer regulation, perhaps, of behaviour, but also communication clashes, communication breakdowns, either in, in the form of, uh, you know, fallings out and, and all the stress of that, or um, actually people internalising these struggles and it having an impact on them personally. Um, safety for new students also very much uh, meant finding people who are similar to you. That was quite a striking founding among the students we spoke to, people who felt familiar, people who had similar values. Um, it was very closely linked to identity and especially for students who felt that they weren't typical. Now, interestingly, most of the students we spoke to felt that they weren't typical. They would tell us about how they were different from other students. It was a, a very small number, actually, who said thought that they were normal and everyone felt like them. Um, so they had that, that quite strong awareness, which uh, chimes in with some of the things we found last year when we were just looking specifically at Generation Z uh, coming to university. And we heard about them using small clues like uh, accent or the way someone dressed or their demeanour, um, things like someone's ethnicity, whether they drank or smoked. They were using these things as a clue to find people that they might wish to be friends with and find that safe group. Um, we spoke to we spoke to a, a black student who had done a lot of work through his student union with uh, black and minority ethnic students. Uh, and he said to us, this was back in January, he said, uh, well, some of the black students I speak to only really feel safe when there's other black students around, uh, which which felt like, a, a you know, in retrospect, feels like a, a bit of a premonition about some of the things we've heard over the summer. So I expect and hope that we will hear some more of these sort of things being articulated um, over the coming year as well. Um, Alison earlier talked about tribes. Uh, it, it's certainly a word we would use. Uh, it, it felt like that in, in normal times, it was a really important task for first year students to find their tribe uh, in order to feel safe. And then from there, they could branch out. Um, and this year, the drive is not going to be different, I suspect, but the context is extremely different. So um, how are we going to help students to make friends and uh, use, you know, some of the strategies they're using to find their safe group in a socially distanced world? Um, I was very struck by what Libby said about course mates, because that came out very strongly for us. Um, we heard that course mates tend to make really good friends. They can be your forever friends uh, because they share the same interests. They're going through the same experiences. But it can take a, quite a long time to get to know them. So months or even, you know, the best part of the first year. Um, so and, and that was just because you'd go into your, um, you know, your classes and so on. You'd see them and then you'd go away again. It took a while for, for those relationships to build up. So if there would be one tip that I would share from this, it would be um, actually finding ways for course mates to get to know one another in sort of various different contexts. Would, would be really important. We heard some good face-to-face -face versions of that. Um, so how will that be replicated uh, in a socially distanced way? Similarly, opportunities for minority groups to form friendship. Um, so one student had found his really great safe friends um, on a, a chat group for non-drinkers. So they came from lots of different backgrounds, but none of them wanted to drink at university and, and that really helped him. So uh, just sort of creative approaches like this would maybe replicate some of those uh, visual clues, auditory clues and so on that students are using just to find who is, who's my safe group, who's my happy group. Um, right, so I guess um, it might be useful to talk about but what we're doing here at York in terms of our return to campus and, and facilitating a, a safe return to campus um, as we're having students join us over the next few weeks. Um, so we've been really ambitious uh, in our plans and we've been working really closely with the university 
to, to create spaces where students can socialize safely and uh, because I'm sure many of us will have seen uh, you know in terms of local lockdowns and, and sort of events and, and parties uh, over the last few weeks uh, illegally frankly uh, taking place what we're really cautious of is that we create spaces and facilitate social time uh, for people to meet on campus um, so one thing we've created is, is the forest and this is a 500 strong uh, capacity venue uh, on our campus and, and anyone who knows York will know we've got we're really lucky to have lots of green space and I appreciate other more city centre campuses uh, simply haven't got the space to do that uh, but one thing we've been doing is uh, you know creating these spaces and outdoor marquees so that we can facilitate uh, social time for students because I think we'll all be aware of the last few months of you know increase uh, you know, an increase in students feeling really down and isolated, obviously being away, away from their friends and in rooms. And I graduated under lockdown and finished my dissertation in lockdown. So I know how important it is to gradually, um, you know, gradually return to a sense of normality, but obviously do so in a really safe way. Uh, and through, through these um, sort of marquee extensions, we've actually created 120 plus jobs for students because um, obviously at a time uh, when students are struggling to find work through, through part time jobs in the city or cities across the country. I think it's really important that we're able to offer um, opportunities to, to students um, and obviously to facilitate um, safe mixing. Um, Patrick was elected uh, on a manifesto he wrote before a pandemic sprung. And was elected in and found out that, that he was successfully elected to take over as the president um, uh, very shortly after the first UK case, uh, confirmed case of coronavirus appeared in York. Um, uh, so, so he, you know, he had a manifesto that was about liberating students, about creating exciting, innovative, creative spaces, about creating freedoms, about allowing students to discover new things. And when he arrived, you know, by July the 1st, really what he challenged me and others to think about was to how we could balance um, student safety with student freedoms. And very quickly chatting to Patrick, we realised that uh, Patrick wanted to understand how we would navigate risk. He didn't want us to navigate it for him or for our students. He wanted us to navigate it with them so that they really understood uh, what we were doing. It's very much what Jenny was talking about, about, you know, the link between confidence and safety, that if they understand how and why, that they will have a much, much deeper engagement with and sense of safety. So we have sat down with every single student society, every single volunteering network, every single liberation group, every single sports team, and we have plotted a way with them through a return to activity and start to talk about what that might look like. So there's some really simple stuff there where we might chat with them and we might say, could your activity move outdoors? Could your activity have a face mask policy? Could your activity reduce the amplified noise? Th these, are, these are simple and obvious risk mitigations and they can't always do them, but we're getting them to think about how do I create problem solving skills that keep me and the members of my society or my sports team safe? And that can only be good for them because they are then bought into the solution that they design. They're, they're proud of keeping their members safe. They want to maintain those standards. It's, it's rather than subjecting them to the bureaucracy, as some might say, of our health and safety procedures, we are, we are making them part of the health and safety process. They are learning, they are developing personally, and they are therefore celebrating that with us as, as a way of keeping their freedoms by, by promoting good quality safety. That's, that's, that's an intensive and difficult exercise and, and it hasn't always been easy and we have had to go back to and revise those plans. And then finally today, this autumn, thanks to COVID-19, first year students' ability to make friends and build connections in their learning community will be severely restricted. And in a cracking panel supported by Aula, we explored that very issue. Um, so I work with universities on tackling inequality, whether that's structural inequality as a whole or specific manifestations stations of that such as awarding gaps harassment hate crime or learning teaching and curriculum which excludes silences or otherwise fails to meet the needs of diverse learners and in all those conversations there's policy there's process there's targets there's surveys but there's also this really intangible powerful human stuff that's culture and community the relationships that we're forging amongst peers with teachers with services with our discipline our locality and yeah the institution itself so let's have a little chat about community or perhaps communities plural and about inclusion and why it's so important in ensuring all students are supported to have an equitable experience so community is about finding a place to be yourself, to be safe and to be valued for yourself, to create a sense of belonging, not assimilation. 
It's about reducing isolation and finding a support network to be there for you when things inevitably do get tricky. Something particularly important, I think, for this term. Community is also, though, the place of challenge, of interaction, stimulation and encountering difference and learning to value, navigate and explore that. For the university, this is all really important for things like increased retention, engagement and partnerships, for ensuring what we call good relations between different groups and backgrounds. And for the academic pipeline, if you will, uh, this is about really welcoming people early into a rich and thriving community uh, to counter imposter syndrome, to ensure we've got diverse scholarship and stronger academic disciplines. So my challenge is actually to transport these wonderful facilities to an online you know, facility and obviously to build a community. And I would say that perhaps building a community is more of a mindset than anything else. And for me, what, um, what has inspired me is that uh, for, for, for the whole of my life, actually, I've been a, a disabled person. And when I was a student, I didn't have any access to the building because I couldn't physically access the building. So I missed about 70% of my education and I had to just get on with it and find a way of learning. And it was really not easy. But one person brought me my homework every day and that saved my life and uh, so for me this idea of coming together and really helping one another is really powerful because that's something that I have experienced quite uh, quite well so I've been building communities for quite a while and obviously online and face to face and I would like to speak to you about perhaps uh, a very practical way of building a community and have gone about it so I'm going to give you some very specific ways so the first the first thing I would like to tell you is that, as I said before, building a community is more of a mindset. There isn't a simple recipe that you follow like a book, you know. And I would say that the first thing, especially online, is that a community needs a home. And I'd like you to think about this for a minute, you know, because what kind of home do we provide for a community when it's online? Loads of links to connect to, you know. So I think that's quite important. And here, perhaps uh, a thought challenging um, idea is that are the universities using the right technology? I mean, are we on Zoom for a special purpose here? But, you know, I'm quite allergic to a lot of tools that the university is asking me to, um, to actually engage with. And I've decided to be quite rebellious and not to engage with these tools because they don't suit me. So some form of flexibility is quite um, required if we want to provide communities with a home. For me, a home uh, has got to be easy to use. It's got to be a place where everybody can contribute on an equal footing. It's got to be visually appealing. Um, it's got to be on an app with notifications so that you've got your mobile phone and you can access it whenever you go. It's got to be familiar and intuitive and it's got to be there for you. Then if you've got a home, it's got to be inviting. There's nothing worse than arriving to a home and there's nothing there and it's quite cold. You know, if you go to somebody's house, you want them to open the door and they've prepared a meal for you and it feels really nice and warm, you know. So for me, um, in that community, I already populate the community with my old students, the graduates. I call them the ambassadors and they're here to really welcome these new people with their experience and that is really brilliant. And all the tutors are there as well. The librarian is there. So when you subscribe to this home to this community you've got the link and it's there what is one of my favorite topics which is uh, building community and a sense of belonging with students um, the reason uh, that this is one of my favorite topics uh, is because um, as an educator building community and creating a sense of uh, belonging and community with my students had a very significant and really quite quick so we're talking here within one semester but a really significant and positive impact on a number of things so on their grades on their rates of participation, on their satisfaction scores, which we found out at the end of the year, and on um, also on their reported um, levels of happiness and well-being. And what's hopefully uh, reassuring, maybe even exciting for everybody, is that a lot of the community that I and others have built and maintained among our students has been powered by technology. So it's happened online. I think often when we talk about building community and belonging, we often assume that in the flesh is best. Um, but in fact, the evidence suggests that, that where we build community is um, probably a lot less important than how we go about doing it. Um, so the first tip that I have is when you're working online, take time. And I think, um, again, Danielle, you made this point brilliantly and I couldn't agree more. Take time to conduct introductory activities, activities which enable students to get to know both you uh, as an educator and one another in ways which are meaningful and complex and real rather than transactional and formal and superficial and these sorts of activities are so often seen as a nice to have but actually the literature shows that, that they play a really critical part in laying particularly at the beginning so in laying foundations that are then necessary for, for building community and a sense of belonging 
Um, I'm just going to run through the sort of five key things that we, we we wrote down for ourselves at the start of this. And, and one is probably the biggest topic of all, which is about this idea of shifting our mindset away from thinking of students within a student union context as consumers of services uh, and thinking more of them as citizens within the student community at the University of Bath and everything that, that means in terms of thinking about that citizen-focused approach. Uh, and everything that falls in that sort of makes sense in that context. So our focus has been much more around maximising opportunities for students to contribute to their communities rather than trying to focus on having them get the most out of their time, that kind of transactional uh, relationship that we were really focused on before. Um, we're asking students to think about ourselves as a, as a, as a community, um, but thinking about how we create that community together. And again, that's a shift away from us thinking about that individualistic, uh, your time at Bath and what you get from that from that there. Um, it really, really struck me in terms of uh, a community needs at home. Uh, and when uh, coronavirus struck and we all went into, all went into lockdown, uh, our student communities needed at home because they all fled campus, they all went back to their homes, um, within a few that were stuck on campus. Um, we need to relocate those communities in a platform that could be suitable for everyone uh, and, uh, and that could reach everyone in such a drastic and dramatic time. Uh, and that's why we created Corona Community, uh, which was initiated by, um, by the officers and it was just a simple group on Facebook in order to keep our community alive. And there were very interactive activities and I'm really, really glad that a lot of uh, what we did fitted with what Philippa mentioned before in terms of keeping, of creating an online community because we really winged it at the beginning. However, what we have done has really worked in terms of what Philippa mentioned before, in terms of, yes, we started um, putting in content and we were, we were running daily workouts, um, uh, baking challenges, uh, and that was at the beginning facilitated by the officers, but the real magic happened when the students started piling in uh, and that really showed what we were thinking in our strategy in terms of students want to contribute to their community. They really want to shape their community and make it better. Um, which worked very well in our document, but that was the first time that we fully saw it in practice. And it was incredible to see what, just how incredible it was and how that fed more and more engagement. We had, we, we had around 4,000 members of that group, of which the vast majority were active to some extent uh, during that. Uh, and it was a community rather than an organizational action. And again, it's that shift from officers as figureheads to facilitators. Great stuff. So that's about it for this week. Back to our normal format next week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to all of our speakers and panellists, sponsors for Secret Life, Pearson, Aula and Solution Path, and the whole team at Wonky, of course, for making everything happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay wonky. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.